You are listening to Kubernetes Bytes, a podcast bringing you the latest from the world of cloud-native data management. My name is Ryan Walner, and I'm joined by Bob and Shaw, coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts. We'll be sharing our thoughts on recent cloud-native news and talking to industry experts about their experiences and challenges managing the wealth of data in today's cloud-native ecosystem. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. We're coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts. Today is April 28th, 2022. I hope everyone is doing well and staying safe. Let's dive into it. Bhavan, how have you been? I, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Like I uh, came back from the AWS Summit in San Fran last week. Uh, felt weird that as I was traveling, the mask mandates were off. So everybody at the true. airport and flight, like 50%, 75% people are not wearing, not wearing a mask. Yeah. And then I think at the conference, I gave away those masks as well. So, so <laughs> I, I feel we were getting back to normal. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely a little you know, flip-floppy, for, for sure. Even even with KubeCon, right? It was like, I think one day an email came out that said, mm-hmm. no masks, don't worry about it. And then the next day it was like, just kidding. Uh, you, you need them now still at KubeCon. Yeah. Um, I think that's sort of the norm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, people want to get back to normal, but they're trying to do the right thing, make sure yeah. people are comfortable, have a good time. I'm still excited for KubeCon no matter what. I'll wear whatever they want me to yeah. <laughs> um it'll be nice to see people in person um and and really get on the show floor since the mm-hmm. first time in a while i don't think i was even at the last KubeCon you were so yeah but and I'm, I'm excited about spring like weather is getting better uh i've already planned a few trips so next weekend i'll be headed out to bryce canyon national park so i'm excited about that uh just trying to squeeze some like I don't know, nature between all the conferences that we have to attend in, in, in the May should. or June timeframe. <laughs> As you should. For those who don't know on the, who are listening to the podcast, Bhavan is like a serial hiker. Um, <laughs> like he'll just go on these awesome trips and just be like, yeah, I went to Acadia and did like yeah. this mountain and, and you're like, oh, okay. Um, so lots of cool things, hopefully for you in the future. That's good. Yeah. I'm excited for the weather too. Um, you know, can't get outside enough these days. So that's good to know. Well, today's show is an exciting one. We're going to talk about databases again. I feel like we've been doing that a lot, but that's I think that's yeah. fine. Uh, we're going to talk about MySQL today. We do have uh, a guest on the show from uh, Pure Storage, uh, Andrew Siliphant. He's a solutions architect uh, for the uh, portfolio solutions, working really on all things databases. So, um, you know, we're going to talk about MySQL today, but he's had his hands on many, many databases. Um, so really interested to see what he uh, has to say around MySQL and Kubernetes today. Um, but before that, we're going to dive into a little bit of cloud native news. Uh, why don't you kick it off, Bobbin? Yeah, so uh, I'll start with a funding down. Uh, Armo, A-R-M-O, they raised $30 million. Uh, they didn't specify whether it was like seeds, Series A or Series B. Just said they raised $30 million to help uh, enhance the Cubescape open source project. So Cubescape is uh, the first end-to-end open source Kubernetes security solution. Again, that's what they say. I don't know which ones, which other ones are available in the ecosystem, but Cubescape is one of them. It helps organizations scan configuration files, so your YAML files or Helm charts that you might have. It helps you scan 
Kubernetes clusters and worker nodes that are part of that cluster for any misconfiguration or known vulnerabilities that are published in um, either the NSA guide that we like to talk about a lot, mm-hmm. the other uh, repositories where uh, CVEs are mentioned and make sure that you get notified and alerted uh, whenever you have those vulnerabilities in your Kubernetes environment. So if you're looking for an open source solution, Kubescape is one and Armour is working on making better, I guess. Uh, in, in the second part of news, I wanted to talk about a new uh, analyst report from GigaOM. I know GigaOM does a lot around Kubernetes. Uh, they do one around uh, container storage or Kubernetes storage as well, where Codeworks is part of. This time they are talking about managed Kubernetes solution. And mm. this is like, I, I just found it interesting because when you think about managed, you look at uh, public cloud vendors like EKS and AKS or GKE. Uh, this report lists Platform 9 as the leader. So the reason, like, uh, again, I had to dive into the report to understand why that is and figured out that, okay, Platform 9 provides that solution that has like easy to deploy, easy to use, and you can have uh, worker nodes that are running on-prem, on bare metal uh, machines or VMs, or even in the public cloud. So that they add another layer of abstraction where you can go that multi-cloud route or use multiple platforms and still have that unified control plane. So that makes sense. So if people want to learn more about all the different vendors that are listed there and what are the strengths and challenges, go and read that report that we link in the show notes. Yeah, it's a that's a great report digging into. I mean, GigaOM has a lot of them, um, a bunch of them, even on Kubernetes specific spaces that we suggest going to take a look at. But you know, they'll dive into key criteria like you know, does it have a hybrid cloud? What the yep. pricing model is? Multi-zone application lifecycle, security, all sorts of stuff. Really insightful into, especially if you're looking at getting into using a managed cloud for you know business purposes. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the last thing that I, wa- that I wanted to cover was uh, an update or uh, the next update for NetApp Astra. Uh, this is, I think this came out a couple of days back, but they added support for private AKS clusters and AKS clusters that use Azure uh, Active Directory or Azure AD for authentication for your AKS cluster. So I think they are just going down the route of adding new and new features or more and more features when it comes to uh, these Kubernetes clusters. They also added for their on-prem version, they also added support for VMware Tanzu. I think I think that was missing from their solution. So now with support for Tanzu Kubernetes Grid, TKG, TKGI, both of those are supported if you're using Astra Control Center. Yes, Astra Control Center is the on-prem <laughs> Remembering one. your acronyms. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that, that's like a quick recap of the news that I saw for the past couple of weeks. Cool. How about you? Yeah, just a few here for me that I wanted to point out. One was a blog post on Elasticis, um, and it caught my attention because it dives into why and how you should reboot Kubernetes nodes. I think this is a lot of a lot of the time we sort of forget about these types of operations. We're so excited to be like, get this giant stack up with your cloud native storage, your security, your monitoring, and you're like, poof, it's all running. But the reality is, you run these things in production, um, and especially with you know modern. Uh, day ransomware, malware attacks, um, or even just in healthcare, making sure you're in compliance, up to date, patched. Mm-hmm. Um, you often, no matter how good Kubernetes is, you will reboot nodes, right? Um, <laughs> and I, I really like this article because it it really defines a nice um, uh, image in uh, around sort of the layers of an onion and the attack vectors, right? The mm-hmm. hypervisor, the hardware, the the Linux kernel, Kubernetes itself. Um, as we've seen a lot of CVEs come out for Kubernetes lately. 
um, uh, the container runtimes themselves, container mm -hmm. D, Docker, those kind of things. And then the individual containers, what you put in your Docker file may have its own vulnerabilities, right? Just the way, you know, any application would. So I think I really like the way that it, it kind of dives in here. One thing I think it doesn't touch on, which is the reason I brought it up was, um, you know, the storage component mm -hmm. of this, right? How you reboot um, <clears throat> your storage uh, infrastructure and in it's kind of its own uh, attack vector. Um, I guess you could lump it in the Kubernetes uh, space and mm -hmm. container space, right? Because a lot of CNS runs as containers, but uh, you want to make sure you have the right uh, things there. You want to understand how rebooting your, your Kubernetes nodes not only affects the application, but your storage infrastructure, because you do want to, at least in many cases, kind of roll through those updates and make sure things are, you know, coming back, your replicas are healthy, all that stuff. So really cool article that I just wanted to point out um, that we often sort of forget about digging into. Mm -hmm. uh, the second one um, is an up and coming uh, CNCF on-demand webinar. Really cool topic. It's called Low Ops Kubernetes Storage with MicroKS and OpenEBS. So again, uh, talking about running MicroKS on your laptop, but with uh, CNS uh, uh, through OpenEBS. Really cool topic um, to enable you to get started. Um, I think it uses MicroKS 1.24, it says in the description, and it really gets you know uh, the hands-on with the distributed storage on your laptop, which is, I think, just something that's so cool to be able to uh, do these things and experiment um, in such a sort of de developer-friendly way. So definitely go check that out. All right. I think that is it for the news this week. And without further ado, let's talk about MySQL with Andrew Silvan. Andrew, glad to have you on Kubernetes Bytes. Welcome to the show. Um, you know, tell us about you and uh, what you do. Thank you very much, Ryan. So I'm a solutions architect. A solutions architect in pure storage takes the products and we kind of ignore them for a little bit. And we go and we focus <laughs> on applications and we say, you've got a bunch of problems in this application. You've got database. This database wants to do this, this, and this. And then we bring the products and we say, okay, this is where the product might solve the problem. And we go and we prove it out and we give customers advice on how to do that. Very, very simple and easy. Nice. Like, even though it's not one of our stated values, customer first actually makes sense for a solution of architect, right? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So, like, I, I, I know talking to you on our internal Slack, you, you are the database person like that I reach out to for any questions. Can you tell us, like, how long have you been working with databases and, like, specifically MySQL since that's the episode for today? So it started all when I was an undergrad. Um, they were like, oh, we need to go and do web development because web 2.0 is going to be your entire future. Um, <laughs> we, we actually had this big thing where they were like, ah, oh, Oracle, you just, the only database you need to know is Oracle. It'll be fine. <laughs> However, Oracle is really difficult to deploy. It is big. It is a enterprise business critical database. You cannot ask an undergrad who knows how to write a few <laughs> scripts out to do that. So when, when we were doing web development, it was, okay, we're going to focus on PHP. We're going to go focus on essentially what is the LAMP stack. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I had a MySQL database. I had PHP and I had everything going and everything was wonderful. And so I was doing this web development. And I was like, why the bloody hell is it so slow? Mm. And um, so then I had to go and figure out how the database worked in the first place. So that would be my first real encounter with MySQL. Um, and it was definitely an interesting jump from the, we're just going to look at SQL to here's your own database. Let's go and develop a web application environment with a pretty front end. 
Awesome. Yeah, that like, makes I sense. <laughs> I started with the lamp stack too. I, I I know like today if we ask undergrads, they might have a completely different answer that includes containers and Kubernetes. But they I think might. a few years back, yeah, <laughs> lamp stack was the way to go. So like, what what made you move to containers, or like, why? Uh, what are the benefits of running MySQL on containers? So okay, so we're talking about lamp stack because that's a really good example of this. Um, Let's say I'm Facebook and I was like, oh, I'm Mark Zuckerberg. I'm busy coding up uh, the front end of Facebook. I've got PHP. He's got the whole story publicly. And he's like, oh, I've got MySQL, the back end, and everything's working. What happens when you go from, oh, I've got 1,000 people using my database to 50,000 people using it really quickly? You've got serious problems with scale. And I think that's one of the really good things that containers help solve is the, okay, I need to very quickly take the small thing I wrote and scale it, even though it maybe wasn't the first thing I even remotely considered. Mm. So that was the first, why should you run it in containers? It's much more portable. You then stop thinking about, oh, there's a database and the database has problems. And you start thinking about everything as you've got an application stack with a bunch of components that are defined in the same place. So when we're talking about LAMP, take the Linux out of it, and you're suddenly thinking about the WordPress style of scenario. Because as opposed to deploying MySQL now, you're deploying WordPress as an application stack. MySQL is still in there, but you can ignore pieces of it in favor of a bigger story. And that's where containers really does shine. Yeah, and I want to say, you know, you <clears throat> mentioned earlier that you had to go figure out the performance of MySQL when you're working with LAMP stack, right? Why is it so slow? And I know one of the things that a lot of people kind of question when getting into containers is, oh, there's this another version of uh, virtualization. What does it do to my database performance, right? They're they're uh, apprehensive to putting their databases in containers because they're like, well, it works so well on this giant beefy machine outside of any virtualization, right? So why would I put it next to my applications? And, you know, what experience did you have there, I guess, working with at all, you know, the performance outside of containers, inside containers? What I've found is that regard, so you, you mentioned virtualization there, which was quite um, interesting because mm -hmm. we went from five years ago, it was VMs will never be as fast as bare metal to, <laughs> oh, VMs are fine. They work okay. Which we, and then containers is now the exact same argument again, which is more of a resistance to those who are set in their ways. And Instead, I now focus on it from a perspective of a database will run as fast as you tell it to run and as fast as the resources you give it. So in virtualization, you're still going to be giving it CPU allocations. If you put 50,000 things onto something that can only handle one thing, it's going to run slower just because of the way you do it. Containers and containerization and the orchestration layers do actually help you spread that a lot more evenly, whereas virtual machines allow you to do crazy over-provisioning. Um, where you've also got a provision for operating systems and things like that. Take the operating system provisioning out of the equation and suddenly you have, ah, we are only provisioning for the application. I have a MySQL database. I'm going to put four of those onto, let's say, two or three nodes. That's doable. All you then have to do is take a look at, do the nodes have enough um, physical grunts to be able to do what I want? And the <laughs> nicer thing about that is the node is the stateless um, the stateless story of where you're going. So the node exists in AWS, it exists in Azure, it's a bare metal server, it's even a VM. So the arguments we use, and we've already solved this, which is even funnier of, well, VMs aren't that bad. Well, if you can run containers in all of these environments, you can't really make the same argument for, well, it's going to slow it down. Instead, the containerization of it is just a new way in which to address the same thing. 
Yeah, it's a really good way of putting it, right? Um, and and <clears throat> this is, I think, what we're starting to see and with everyone who we talk to is people are kind of getting over that initial hump of, you know, should I be doing it? And now it's like, well, it's been it's been proven. You can do this. You can put it on bare metal. It really doesn't make a difference. You're, you're provisioning resources for the application. So really what you have to do is run MySQL well, right? Run your mm -hmm. application stack well. Um, and I think that's the adoption we're seeing. And, and that kind of leads into my next question is like, once you've explored putting a database into a container or even your application stack into a container, you naturally progress into how do I run this thing at scale, right? And that's where, where does MySQL make sense on Kubernetes? And, and that's my question to you is, you know, why Kubernetes instead of just, you know, running it in a container on a, on a node somewhere? Okay, so I, I'll take you back to LAMP. Because for the first time in a very long time, I had a Google last night and I was like, how the hell do you get WordPress to scale? Because I haven't touched this in years. Yeah. So then I said, all right, Google in, how does WordPress scale? And I went through this very, very complex blog. And I was like, I just do not want to do this. I don't even <laughs> want to touch it. So here's the thing. I'm going to build my business operations in a certain way with a certain expectation that I'm going to scale for, let's say, 20% growth a year. So then you're architecting your environment for that. What happens if your growth and your user base suddenly goes through the roof because you're much more popular than you think? Um, to give you examples of applications that encounter this, um, I, I think I'm showing relative age of youngness here of five, six years ago with Snapchat. Everybody suddenly started using it overnight. And the only thing you can think of is how in the world does anybody get that scale? Mm -hmm. So, all right, you've got the world of non-containerization. I want to scale. Okay, it's a VM. You add another VM, you install another operating system, you copy your database over, you copy your configuration mm -hmm. files, you somehow get them all to talk to one another. That is a lot of work. And frankly, people do not want to do all that work on a continuous basis. So what we've done is we've innovated ourselves into laziness, which is, okay, I've got these environments. I'm going to set them up this way for this scale. But if I want to add new things onto the software components of that environment, that should not be difficult. So as opposed to, I've got a MySQL database, I need to add more database load to it, but let's say read things, as opposed to doing all the copying, it is a change in the YAML namespace, which is a single line of code. And that makes it a hell of a lot easier for your administrator. So, oh, I need another node to be able to handle this. Your Kubernetes environment should already be over-provisioned to be able to handle that load. Mm -hmm. So it's okay, we're going to very quickly increase our overall database capacity, our overall application and business capacity, and that could be done very, very quickly. And that's the goal we want to do because you can innovate faster from the application perspective as opposed to worrying about, well, is Bob down in IT going to have my new server up tomorrow? <laughs> you don't want to worry about those things anymore. Yeah, that's a good point. And you bring up Snapchat, but there's <clears throat> maybe another good example, which is Pokemon Go, right? Oh, <laughs> we'll, we'll date ourselves there too. But actually, it was, um, I think, one of the largest deployments on Kubernetes where, back in 2016. Uh, I just did a quick Google here. And, and to your point, they estimated sort of a 5x worst case traffic estimate. And they'd have to scale for that. What they got was 50x, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and running on Kubernetes, running on Google at the time, um, you know, that enabled this sort of uh, their developers to focus on the application, rolling new features, not really worrying about the scale. I think to your point, that's really the power that I think, you know, drives this uh, why put your things on Kubernetes. Why even, why I think why co-locating them is a different question, yeah. uh, you know, 
bring your data close to your application, but definitely one of the uh, the reasons. Uh, to yeah, go ahead, Bavin. No, so uh, I guess uh, Ryan, before you asked the previous question, that you said people are asking like, should I be running this on Kubernetes? And we have changed the question now. How should I be running this on Kubernetes? Yeah. So I, I just wanted to like, okay, one of the challenges that Kubernetes solves, Andrew clearly highlighted that like it's easy to scale. If you want to add replicas, you just update your YAML file and apply it against your Kubernetes cluster. But then, Andrew, like, are there any other challenges that Kubernetes helps solve? Like, okay, things are better because it runs on Kubernetes or the other way around as well, right? Like, are there any things that are new challenges because we are running it on Kubernetes? Like, I want both perspectives. So our newer challenges are we're taking existing code bases and we're containerizing them. So then your newer challenge becomes how do we bundle all of this up to be able to make it a shippable product. When mm -hmm. I say shippable, um, I'm not talking about giving it access to customers. We're taking environments and we're trying to very, very quickly debug those. So if you think about it, I've got a bug. I don't want to have to wait for Bob down and IT build me a new de test dev environment and copy this all the way over there. So the newer problems are we are solving the application stack in production. And we've got the ability to copy it to a test dev environment. Now what we're looking at is how do we make these two things part of the exact same pipeline, which is DevOps, which is mm -hmm. I'm going to have my day zero. We spend two years developing an application. Then we're going to pipeline the application once it's released into the wild. Oh, we've got a problem. We then need to worry about getting the application to another place to be able to mm -hmm. go and find the problem that is probably a typo in the code for all. <laughs> and then taking that and making it available into production. So to slightly change your question away from what new problems are we creating, we are creating new innovation routes. And the problems within that are we're moving away from the traditional application space and moving to a higher plane of thinking of orchestrating business operations as opposed to orchestrating applications. And when you can orchestrate at the business level, everybody's happier. You make accountants happier, lawyers happier you name it. So if we were to say, what new problems are we creating? I'd say we're creating too much time to spend on, how do, how do I articulate this? We're spending more time higher in the stack, whereas the problems might be deeper. So we need a very clear way to get deeper into the application stack, which I think is actually, I don't think we're creating new problems. <laughs> you actually already said it. I, I really don't see it because I was following a, a line of thought around, okay, so we can copy data everywhere. Yeah. This is good. We can make the business people happy. We're good. It's, DevOps is the only real problem you can articulate there, which is already a solution to an existing problem. Nice. Awesome. Like that's, that's a great way to put it. <laughs> okay. I know, Bavin, so, uh, we had a, I know, Bavin, we had a conversation the other day about, um, you know, the challenge of putting things into containers, right? Mm -hmm. um, databases have translated fairly well, apart from those bigger monolithic Oracle ones. Um, although still, you know, they still have those. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it begs the question of certain applications, there's a bigger challenge if you want to take an existing application, break that down, that's actually creating new problems. Whereas starting sort of green, uh, you're, you're innovating, right? In, in sort of the way I look at it. But I think database technology to our conversation the other day uh, with uh, about Cassandra, which is what's the future of that too, right? Mm -hmm. do, we, do we eventually break down the individual databases with what they do internally 
and run them separately inside uh, Kubernetes versus, you know, the whole database just kind of running as a container. Different conversation, but I think, you know, there's a lot to be said within that uh, to Andrew's point. Yeah. So, okay, next question. Like, how do we get started? Like, I know there is a MySQL operator. Is that the best way, like, to deploy an InnoDB cluster? And what does the architecture look like? Okay. So, um, I actually had some notes about this, which was, uh, let, let's take a look at primary and secondary stuff. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, all right, you've got the MySQL operator. I believe as of today, correct me, this could change in a second's notice. <laughs> the MySQL um, operator is still in beta access. It is a really good way to show how we've packaged up all of the different technologies. So let's take mm -hmm. um, the operator and what it does. It is InnoDB cluster. InnoDB cluster is a solution made up of multiple components. The first component is group replication, which is how we, the different databases talk to one another and the modes they sit in. Then you've got the MySQL shell that sits on top of that and coordinates it. And then you've got router um, on top of all of that saying, this is how we're going to get to the underlying databases of this is where write's going to go, this is where read's going to go, mm -hmm. and so on. So if I can just interrupt you, that, like <laughs> yeah. for people that uh, like that was router as well, like in a different accent. <laughs> just, sorry, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very South African. <laughs> <laughs> South Africans also like to say database as opposed to database. It took me many <laughs> years to get out of that. Um, <laughs> Go ahead, <sorry>. so, <laughs> that's all right. So you've got these three components. If I'm doing a non-containerized deployment of it, you have to worry about each of those components. When, you, when you're dealing with the operator, that you stop caring about the in-depth of the components and they're already there. And then the entire thing you're worrying about is what's sitting in the YAML namespace, what are we configuring for? And you go and do it. So is it the best way to do it? That is the single hardest question you can ask MySQL simply because MySQL can be deployed in too many different ways. To give you an example, that's the MySQL operator. That is just it. That's the community edition, Oracle loves it, goes and does it. For the vast majority of cases, it would probably work. But it gets even more complicated. You've got Galera cluster as a replication option. I'm pretty sure you can make Galera cluster work in a containerized environment. Um, but there might not be an operator that does it. I'm sure there is. You've also got the variants of MySQL. So I'm not sure if it's planet scale um, or there's a few others inside which have taken MySQL's code, customized it for what they want to do, and then gone out there, which is why it makes that a really, really hard question to answer. The operator, as I said, a very good starting place. However, there's nothing saying I'm just going to deploy MySQL and say I want to scale it because the way the operator works is maybe not what I want to do. So then you have the ability to say, all right, we're going to have one primary, many rep many replicas with this stateful set. And then you're essentially telling Kubernetes to give you just a common IP to work with. You can configure that within yourself. So it entirely depends what your application is really doing. Do you want a supported, likely to have continuous development through its life solution? MySQL operator, fantastic. Do you want to do something that the operator doesn't necessarily meet your requirements for and you want to innovate further? You can take MySQL and you can go and do even further, more things with that. So that is a really hard question to answer simply because of how dynamic the MySQL community is. Yeah, and I, I, I would like to say that because the operator pattern is definitely uh, one of the newer concepts within Kubernetes, right, as far as dating the entire thing, um, I think there's this sort of mass rush to create operators for things, right? MySQL being one of them where, like you said, 
if you go into and start Googling how to run MySQL on Kubernetes and look for operators, you're going to find a whole bunch, right? From, from companies who have customized things to the community editions. And you're just like, what is going on? You have to do your own research, right? Of mm-hmm. what does um, this operator do versus that one, you know, versus licensing, payment, all those things. Um, and I think that is... <clears throat> I hope going to sort of normalize over time of sort of the the standard ways to run community versus if you want to go with vendors. Like mm-hmm. I think operator patterns are definitely going to be the way to do it. Although you're always going to have people that are going to design their own way of deploying databases. That's never going to stop. Um, but I do think over time, these operators will get very robust in you know how they handle things, how they allow you to do customizations. Right now, they're very opinionated, um, mm-hmm. in my opinion, <laughs> um, and uh, they they only they don't let you kind of go outside the scope of what the operator can do. I, I'd really like to see more customization and say, oh, if you want to use this part of the operator but not this part, go for it. Right, um, which leads me to the next question. Right, um, operators do a great job of sort of handling deployment, um, you know, day two operations, those kind of things. And we can go into that a little bit more. But I think at its core, one of the values that I think we hear over and over again is handling failure on Kubernetes, right? Uh, Could you talk a little bit to how this would, you know, generally look like without something like Kubernetes and sort of maybe the benefits you get with MySQL and sort of a, you know, primary, secondary sort of uh, way when you are running it on Kubernetes? Okay. so. If we talk about take the Kubernetes side out of it and just focus on the database, um, you've got primaries, you've got secondaries, which is a replication style environment. I have day one, I've decided, okay, I'm going to implement my MySQL um, database for my PHP web service and everybody's happy. You then find that you have Wikipedia levels of growth and everybody's suddenly very interested in what you want. So, oh, I've got loads of reads. Everybody, I keep updating this and everybody keeps reading it. I've got like 90,000 people reading it and I can only do one update a day. What do you do? Your, your, your ability to scale is either vertical or horizontal. Mm-hmm. Horizontal scaling is what we're going to focus on here because vertical scaling is we're just going to give it loads of power and hope it doesn't fall over. <laughs> um, so your horizontal scaling then says, okay, let's go and copy the database. Let's keep it in sync with your primary database and go from there. And then what we'll do is we're going to do read style operations to your secondary. This allows me to scale in a better way. And weirdly enough, that's how you design a website. You should, in theory, get a hell of a lot more um, reads to your website because that's driven traffic than you should be (laughs) updating it, unless you're Facebook, and that's something else entirely because that's constantly (laughs) changing. (laughs) Okay, so you have this kind of environment of how you're going to look at making things more highly available. That was the original style, and that's MySQL replication. Then we started building in the, well, what if the primary goes offline? How screwed are we? (laughs) <laughs> and you are very screwed if you're using standard replication styles. So that's where the more complex technologies like Galera cluster, group replication, and, and those kinds of things came along. Because then you started to look at multi-primary or multi-write style replication environments, which is a much more difficult programmatic problem to solve. So kudos to the developers who, who thought those up. Because think about it. If I've got 16 replicas and I'm doing synchronous style replication, Every single one of those replicas has to accept that, yes, I'll accept this change um, before you can do anything. That's going to slow down your whole website. Mm-hmm. So what they did was they they kind of looked at this near-style synchronous replication or eventual, um, eventual um, synchronicity or eventual consistency over time. 
And really, really cool things started to come out of that of we could scale these databases, but your synchronous style would, let's say you've got 16 nodes, we'd worry about three of them getting it and then the rest can bugger off and we'll worry about them later. So what does this mean in the concept of Kubernetes? Okay, I've got 16 nodes to worry about. That is a lot of stuff to go and then orchestrate and make it a hell of a lot more complex. So here's the thing that I'd love to know. If my secondary systems go out of sync, they're, they're, they're going to need to come back into sync. How do we ensure that when they're out of sync, there is a mechanism to bring them back into sync very quickly? Kubernetes actually, and I, I haven't seen it properly exploited. I've seen everybody touching at the edges of it, of, okay, this thing is two days out of sync. As opposed to trying to bring it in sync, we're just going to wipe it out, copy the main one and start again. And that's the kind of behavior you're starting to enable in programmatic um, environments like this, because Kubernetes is a programmatic orchestrator. So that's fantastic. If I did that without the programmatic orchestrator of Kubernetes, OpenShift, all of those things, what do I have to do? I have to go and write a script that says, oh, what was the last bin log entry? <laughs> if the bin log entry was this far out, I'm going to wipe you out. I'm going to do you. I don't want to worry about that stuff. I want yeah, those kinds yeah. of mechanisms to be built in already. I, I, that was a very long form way of answering your question, but I thought it worth building the bricks first. I think it was great. I think it was great. And a lot of those built-ins, just like, you know, how these individual replicas are identified, how they get IP addressed, service discovered, right? All these things that um, are built in, I think, <clears throat> is the is the real value. And it, it's a, one of the first times I've heard, right, someone focusing on sort of just wipe out the, the thing that's out of sync and, and copy it. And it begs the question of, you know, are there, since this is uh, also a podcast that <laughs> focuses on storage, are there benefits to doing this with or without a cloud native storage, right? So um, if you do this without it, right, I, MySQL does this, everything at the application layer, I, mm -hmm. I presume. I'm no MySQL expert. Um, but with cloud native storage, I, I assume there's benefits of doing things like copying data or bringing things back into sync if you have some sort of, you know, uh, persistence under there. Yep, there is definite value in doing it. So if you think about it from the MySQL perspective, all MySQL cares about is, am I pointing towards a directory that has everything working and am I happy with it? That is its MO. Um, what MySQL will try and do in those replication environments is it's going to say, what was the last bin log entry? Do I need to copy this? It's very lazy. It's kind of like a very slow moving trolley. And it says, okay, we're going to lift it over here. In storage, we have a hell of a lot more capabilities. So think about it. MySQL is pointing at a directory. If that's all it's pointing at, all we have to do is stop it pointing at it, stop it in, in its entirety, replace the directory itself with whatever's up to date, and then move on. Very, very easy and straightforward. You can do that more easily at the storage layer because of complex technologies that we have simplified, like snapshotting, um, copy data management, pointing to existing data. Those are the kinds of beautiful things that are coming out of storage technologies now. And you're finding storage is getting uplifted into the application layer because of conversations like this. Nice. So, okay, the snapshots, right? Like what are the other tools that can help you like protect your database instances? Like how can I back it up? How can I restore it? Like how do I plan for all of those disaster events or like just weird events? Oh, so uh, let's focus on MySQL with that. MySQL mm -hmm. backup and recovery and data copy has been a really fun area for many years <laughs> because they did things and then they were like, oops, this doesn't work. We need to do something else. So you have a whole bunch of tools now. 
Um, let's start at the beginning. So MySQL dump, the, the first, foremost, and probably one of the more commonly used one. I've got a small 10 gig database. I'm going to dump the logical data out of it into a bunch of files. Everything's good. No one worries too much about it. MySQL dump becomes absolutely terrible when you're talking about like terabyte sized databases. Because think about it, you have to logically read every row and every table in the whole database and make sure you've got the data definitions for it, the data manipulation, and that just gets old real quick. So then they came up with, ah, okay, so we're going to, a company called Procona um, was very clever and they were like, we're going to develop something called Extra Backup. And they were like, oh, yeah, we're, we're, we're the top dogs with this. And, the, and they were for quite a while where they, they combined freezing the database, taking backups of the, the physical state of it, moving it somewhere else, and ensuring it didn't interrupt any actual running operations. That's kind of how most data backup tools work these days. MySQL and MariaDB got real clever. And they were like, okay, we're going to take your code and we're going to own it. It's open source. So we're going to take it. We're going to copy it. We're going to call it something else and then improve it. So now what you have is you've got the option of using MySQL dump. You've got MySQL backup and Maria backup. So MySQL backup is extra backup with extra steps um, and a new name and a new lick of paint. And <laughs> it, it's frankly pretty good. I mean, both tools are very good in their own thing. And what's happening is MySQL backup is innovating. So we're starting to get interesting things like backing up directly to S3 and mm -hmm. things like that. And to slightly rewind it, you're talking about operators. One of the roundings of operators, so we, we built the house, we're now going to sand it down to a really nice sheen, is, mm -hmm. okay, let's start looking at how these backup tools are implemented within containerized environments. Is it, okay, the operator itself is going to go and talk to all of the different things, or do we do it at a more logical layer? And those are the kinds of, to even go back to what problems are we creating? We've solved one problem. Is the problem we've solved previously still applicable for the new thing, um, such as backup and recovery, which we're starting to see interesting tools come out of that. Yeah, and why would, you know, why would someone choose to use the MySQL specific tools over, say, a more generic solution at the storage layer, since we talked about snapshots and things like that? Okay. Most of the time you do things with the specific tools like MySQL dump because you're talking about changes in architecture. So for example, I off the top of my head, I think MySQL supports PowerPC. You cannot take the data from a, a PowerPC instance of MySQL and just shove it into an x86 instance. So you'd have to dump it out and move it there. Mm -hmm. That's also one of the ways in which we're, we're doing a little bit of advice around, well, how would you move data from a non-infrastructure um, as a, from infrastructure as a service style deployments through to managed service deployments for databases? And you do that in the same way. So you'd use them for that reason. MySQL backup is also very good where you want to go to a specific endpoint like S3 and existing tools just don't have that technology yet. Mm -hmm. um, so... Would I say we're going to see these kinds of tools around for a while? We probably will. However, I do see lower level Kubernetes backup um, superseding all of that in the exact mm -hmm. same way we saw Veeam take over VM level backups over backing up databases directly from VMs. Yeah. I don't know. One, you know, with talking with a number of our guests, one thing we're starting to hear is that, you know, not relying on one of those things is actually not a bad thing, meaning that go ahead and take both. 
right? Shove them into S3, you know, take your logical backup as well, put that in a snapshot, throw that somewhere else. Like it's kind of like throwing the boat at the whole situation and just like, we have what we need if we need it down the road, right? <laughs> um, but I, I do see a lot of that, especially in the operators, right? That That definitely needs to, I guess, you know, be more succinct in sort of the suggested way of like, here's the, here's the right way. Um, and I, I do find that people using specific databases do want, obviously, to use those specific tools for, for obvious reasons that you just said. Um, well, I mean, this, I think, is a good point to switch gears a little bit and say, you know, in your sort of uh, journey to working with MySQL on Kubernetes, where would you suggest people go get started, right? If they were to um, want to move past all the frustration of which operator to use to have a good experience or just to get their hands on it, where would you suggest they go? I definitely recommend going towards the community editions. They're very good. They're very well supported. There's Because the MySQL operator is quite complex as a starting point, I'd say don't even bother with the operators. Get the database working. One of the greatest challenges for me when first encountering container rules was, why can I not get an IP address to get to this thing from outside? <laughs> and that required me to marry up knowledge I didn't have around mm -hmm. Kubernetes, which is actually quite Googleable, to my existing knowledge around databases in MySQL. And once you start solving those problems, take what you are doing today, make that interact with only a database in the containerized environment and slowly start moving towards it. That way your skill set will marry up much more easily between what you currently know and what is the newer way of doing things with the container orchestrators. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And I find um, you know, those who are getting um, into Kubernetes, knowing Kubernetes, you do have to kind of branch out because, you know, especially in a DevOps culture organization, mm -hmm. you're probably going to touch some things that maybe you normally wouldn't. I mean, maybe some organizations don't necessarily uh, expose you to certain aspects um, and, and they do the deployment and everything for you. But I think it's so uh, vital to know sort of at least a basic uh, sense of how all these things kind of are working yeah. under the covers, right? Um, because if something does, and if you are on the hook as an SRE or as a part of a DevOps team, you, you kind of need to know those things. So definitely go check out all of those good resources. We'll actually put links um, to the community editions, both the operator, non-operator, we'll put some links in there. Um, Andrew, if you have any, we'll, you know, we'll post those as well. Um, but I think it's a good uh, this good point to to stop and um, uh, and I appreciate you being on the show. I think there's a lot of good information here. This mm -hmm. uh, we can only cover so much in about a half an hour. Um, there's so much to talk about when it comes to certain databases and how to run them, what the challenges are, uh, where the future of Kubernetes is going with them. And I think we you know you did a really good job of of you know helping myself and hopefully our listeners as well. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so much. much for being on the pod. You're welcome, gents. Hopefully you'll have me back to talk about new crazy things when they are back. <laughs> of course, we'd love <laughs> to have you back. <laughs> All right, that was a great conversation. I know um, with each database we talk about, Bhavan, I feel like I learn how much I don't know. <laughs> um, and, and it's nice to have these guests such as Andrew on here really digging into, you know, the, the, the different uh, backends for MySQL or the challenges before it was on uh, Kubernetes. And, and, I, and I just think that, you know, the takeaways for me were, you know, the first one I want to talk about is just the concept of um, 
being able to put your databases in a container. And, and maybe some of you listening to this are new to this, or maybe you're already running databases and containers or just staple things. But, um, you know, like VMs, as we talked about in this conversations, there was there was apprehensiveness to even put certain things in VMs when VMs were new. And I think we're getting over that hump, right? We've crossed that chasm as we've talked about multiple times on the show before, and it's, it's, it's here to stay, right? I think the, the most recent survey says like, you know, 90 93% of people are using it in um, uh, production and mm -hmm. over 70% are running stateful things. So um, definitely something that I think, you know, is worth kind of showing that MySQL is just a process on a server. Kubernetes enables it to, to, to deploy and you give resources to it. You have to make sure you're doing the same things for a bare metal environment, VM environment, or Kubernetes environment with containers. So definitely worth um, uh, tying into that. That was a good point for me. And then the second one was, right, that certain aspects of how you operate and maintain MySQL in a non-container or Kubernetes infrastructure, like how do you manage when a uh, secondary node is out of sync for quite mm -hmm. a long time? You know, Andrew talked about, you know, there may be the case where you as an operator would say, well, just, you know, remove that thing entirely, take a copy of the primary and get that thing going again. That's the type of, I think, logic that is finding its way into things like staple sets and operators. I think that probably is more appropriate for an operator. It's very specific to MySQL uh, rather than an abstraction like mm -hmm. uh, staple set. But I think that's where I think the maturity of these operators is really going to show in the next few years of really what uh, robustness can be built into those with those specific types of concepts. So really interesting stuff. How about you? Yeah, for me, like I think when we started the episode with him, right? Like he started with LAMP stack and like yeah. brought in or started with an application first perspective, and that was really helpful. Like databases are great, but then it should you you should think about your whole application as an end to end basis. So if you're running your applications on Kubernetes, now you can also run your databases on Kubernetes and think about it as a whole unit to get started. Uh, there are so many options out there, right? Like even with the operators or without operators, deployment models are different. Uh, the ways you can back it up, he listed like three off the top of his head on how you can uh, protect yeah. MySQL database instances. So all of these, like community does a great job of providing options. But if you are adopting this as part of your organization, if you're trying to run this in production, make sure you test it first, right? Like look at the options. We'll have uh, links in the show notes for the, the, the few options that we see available in the ecosystem. Test it with with your application, see, see how it works, and then push it to production. Because, as Ryan said, right, each operator does um, does uh, uh, handles failures or handles these replication differently. You might want to choose one over the other. So make sure what works for your environment, and then go ahead with it in, and run it in production. Absolutely. Well, as always, we will put all the show links we talked about um, in the. Uh, podcast itself under the show links mm -hmm. sort of um, uh, text. Uh, we'll make sure to put every everything in the news we put in there. We'll t we'll put in the community editions that Andrew talked about the how to deploy it, where the out where you can find the operator, the Pokemon Go link that I was referring to <laughs> early in the show. I think really uh, really interesting article if you haven't seen that one yet. Um, <clears throat> and as always, you know, um, go ahead and leave us reviews wherever you can. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, send us a message um, and uh, wherever you want to. We'd love to hear from you um, and what you want to hear on the show. 
what you like, what you don't like. Send it. Send everything. Um, next two weeks, we have a really uh, interesting guest on the show. We're talking about another database. This time, it's going to be MongoDB mm-hmm. uh, with Michael Lin. Uh, really excited about that episode and and what we'll find out about Mongo. I know. So, he does a really great job with his own podcast, the MongoDB pod. So I'm excited to have him on a, on our podcast and share his insights around, around MongoDB and around MongoDB on Kubernetes. Absolutely. Cool. Well, this brings us to the end of today's episode. I'm Ryan. I'm Bobin. And thanks for joining another episode of Kubernetes Bytes. Thank you for listening to the Kubernetes Bytes podcast. 